15. Of the name by which the surf is called among other intelligent beings elsewhere who can see it. I can only adopt the title of Earth. And therefore I add this line. Now our address is so complete that from anywhere in the solar system from Mercury, from Jupiter, or Neptune there ought to be no mistake about the letter finding its way to Mr. John Smith. But from his correspondent in the Great Bear this address would be still incomplete. They cannot see our Earth from there. And even the sun himself only looks like a small star-like one. In fact, of thousands of stars elsewhere. However, each star can be distinguished. And our sun may, for instance, be recognized from the Great Bear by some designation. We shall add the line, near the Sunday, and then I think that from this constellation, or from any of the other stars around us, the address of Mr. John Smith may be regarded as complete. But Mr. Smith's correspondence may be still wider. He may have an agent living in the cluster of Perseus or on some other object still fainter and more distant, then, near the sun, is utterly inadequate as a concluding line to the address. For the Sunday if it can be seen at all from dance, will be only of the significance of an excessively minute star, no more to be designated by a special name than are each of the several leaves on the trees of a forest. What this distant correspondent will be acquainted with is not the earth or the sun but only the cluster of stars among which the sun is but a unit. Again we use our own name to denote the cluster, and we call it the Milky Way. When we add this line, we have made the address of Mr. John Smith as complete as circumstances will permit. I think a letter posted to him anywhere ought to reach its destination, to perfect it. However, we will finish up with one line more, the universe, the distances of the stars. I must now tell you something about the distances of the stars. I shall not make the attempt to explain fully how astronomers make such measurements, but I will give you some notion of how it is done. You may remember I showed you how we found the distance of a globe that was hung from the ceiling. The principle of the method for finding the distance of a star is somewhat similar, except that we make the two observations not from the two ends of a table, not even from opposite sides of the Earth, but from two opposite points on the Earth's orbit which are therefore at a distance of 186 million miles. Imagine that on midsummer day, when standing on the earth here, I measure with a piece of card the angle between the star and the sun day six months later, on midwinter day, when the earth is at the opposite point of its orbit, I again measure the angle between the same star and the sun day and we can now determine the star's distance by making a triangle. I draw a line a foot long. And we will take this foot to represent 186 million miles, the distance between the two stations, then placing the cards at the corners. I rule the two sides and complete the triangle, and the star must be at the remaining corner, then I measure the sides of the triangle, and how many feet they contain, and recollecting that each foot corresponds to 186 million miles, we discover the distance of the star. If the stars were comparatively near us, the process would be a very simple one. Unfortunately, the stars are so extremely far off that this triangle, even with a base of only one foot, must have its sides many miles long. Indeed, astronomers will tell you that there is no more delicate or troublesome work in the whole of their science than that of discovering the distance of a star. In all such measurements we take the distance from the Earth to the Sun as a conveniently long measuring rod, whereby to express the results, the nearest stars are still hundreds of thousands of times as far off as the Sun. Let us ponder for a little on the vastness of these distances. We shall first express them in miles, taking the sun's distance to be 93 million miles. Then the distance of the nearest fixed star is about 20 millions of millions of miles that is to say. We express this by putting down a two first, 
and then writing 13 ciphers after it, it island no doubt, easy to speak of such figures, but it is a very different matter when we endeavor to imagine the awful magnitude which such a number indicates, I must try to give some illustrations which will enable you to form a notion of it, at first I was going to ask you to try and count this number, but when I found it would require at least 300,000 years, counting day and night without stopping, before the task was over, it became necessary to adopt some other method, when on a visit in Lancashire I was once kindly permitted to visit a cotton mill, and I learned that the cotton yarn there produced in a single day would be long enough to wind round the surf 27 times at the equator, it appears that the total production of cotton yarn each day in all the mills together would be on the average about 155 million miles, in fact, if they would only spin about one-fifth more, we could assert that Great Britain produced enough cotton yarn every day to stretch from the earth to the sun and back again, it is not hard to find from these figures how long it would take for all the mills in Lancashire to produce a piece of yarn long enough to reach from our earth to the nearest of the stars, if the spinners worked as hard as ever they could for a year, and if all the pieces were then tied together, they would extend to only a small fraction of the distance, nor if they worked for ten years, or for twenty years, would the task be fully accomplished, indeed, upwards of four hundred years would be necessary before enough cotton could be grown in America and spun in this country to stretch over a distance so enormous, all the spinning that has ever yet been done in the world has not formed a long enough thread, there is another way in which we can form some notion of the immensity of these sidereal distances, you will recollect that, when we were speaking of Jupiter's moons, I told you of the beautiful discovery which their eclipses enabled astronomers to make, it was thus found that light travels at the enormous speed of about 185,000 miles per second, it moves so quickly that within a single second a ray would flash 200 times from London to Edinburgh and back again, we said that a meteor travels 100 times as swiftly as a rifle bullet, but even this great speed seems almost nothing when compared with the speed of light, which is 10,000 times as great. Suppose some brilliant outbreak of light were to take place in a distant star an outbreak which would be of such intensity that the flash from it would extend far and wide throughout the universe. The light would start forth on its voyage with terrific speed. Any neighboring star which was at a distance of less than 185,000 miles would of course, see the flash within a second after it had been produced, more distant bodies would receive the intimation after intervals of time proportioned to their distances, thus, if a body were one million miles away, the light would reach it in from five to six seconds, while over a distance as great as that which separates the earth from the sun the news would be carried in about eight minutes, we can calculate how long a time must elapse ere the light shall travel over a distance so great as that between the star and our earth, you will find that from the nearest of the stars the time required for the journey will be over three years. Ponder on all that this involves. That outbreak in the star might be great enough to be visible here, but we could never become aware of it till three years after it had happened. When we are looking at such a star tonight we do not see it as it is at present. For the light that is at this moment entering our eyes has traveled so far that it has been three years on the way. Therefore, when we look at the star now we see it as it was three years previously, in fact, if the star were to go out altogether, we might still continue to see it twinkling for a period of three years longer, because a certain amount of light was on its way to us at the moment of extinction, and so long as that light keeps arriving here, so long shall we see the star showing as brightly as ever, when, therefore, you look at the thousands of stars in the sky tonight, 
there is not one that you see as it is now, but as it was years ago. I have been speaking of the stars that are nearest to us, but there are others much farther off. It is true we cannot find the distances of these more remote objects with any degree of accuracy, but we can convince ourselves how great that distance is by the following reasoning. Look at one of the brightest stars. Try to conceive that the object was carried away further into the depths of space, until it was ten times as far from us as it is at present. It would still remain bright enough to be recognized in quite a small telescope, even if it were taken to a 100 times its original distance it would not have withdrawn from the view of a good telescope, while if it retreated 1000 times as far as it was, at first it would still be a recognizable point in our mightiest instruments. Among the stars which we can see with our telescopes, we feel confident there must be many from which the light has expended hundreds of years, or even thousands of years, on the journey. When, therefore, we look at such objects, we see them, not as they are now, but as they were ages ago, in fact, a star might have ceased to exist for thousands of years, and still be seen by us every night as a twinkling point in our great telescopes. Remembering these facts, you will, I think, Look at the heavens with a new interest. There is a bright star, Vega, or Alpha Lyrae, a beautiful gem, so far off that the light from it which now reaches our eyes started before many of my audience were born. Suppose that there are astronomers residing on worlds amid the stars, and that they have sufficiently powerful telescopes to view this globe. What do you think they would observe? They will not see our Earth as it is at present, they will see it as it was years and sometimes many years ago. There are stars from which if England could now be seen, the whole of the country would be observed at this present moment to be in a great state of excitement at a very auspicious event. Distant astronomers might notice a great procession in London, and they could watch the coronation of a youthful queen amid the enthusiasm of a nation. There are other stars still further, from which, if the inhabitants had good enough telescopes, they would now see a mighty battle in progress not far from Brussels. One splendid army could be beheld hurling itself time after time against the immovable ranks of the other. They would not, indeed, be able to hear the ever-memorable, up, guards, and at them. But there can be no doubt that there are stars so far away that the rays of light which started from the earth on the day of the Battle of Waterloo are only just arriving there. Further off still, there are stars from which a bird's eye view could be taken at this very moment of the signing of Magna Charta. There are even stars from which England if it could be seen at all, would now appear, not as the great England we know, but as a country covered by dense forests, and inhabited by painted savages, who waged incessant war with wild beasts that roamed through the island, the geological problems that now puzzle us would be quickly solved could we only go far enough into space and had we only powerful enough telescopes, we should then be able to view our earth through the successive epochs of past geological time, we should be actually able to see those great animals whose fossil remains are treasured in our museums tramping about over the earth's surface, splashing across its swamps, or swimming with broad flippers through its oceans. Indeed, if we could view our own earth reflected from mirrors in the stars, we might still see Moses crossing the Red Sea, or Adam and Eve being expelled from Eden. So important is the subject of star distance that I am tempted to give one more illustration in order to bring before you some conception of how vast such distances are. I shall take, as before, the nearest of the stars so far as known to us, and I hope to be forgiven for taking an illustration of a practical and a commercial kind instead of one more purely scientific. I shall suppose that a railway is about to be made from London to Alpha Centauri. The length of that railway, 
Of course, we have already stated, it is 20 billions of miles. So I am now going to ask your attention to the simple question as to the fare which it would be reasonable to charge for the journey. We shall choose a very cheap scale on which to compute the price of a ticket. The parliamentary rate here is, I believe, a penny for every mile. We will make our interstellar railway fares much less even than this. We shall arrange to travel at the rate of 100 miles for every penny. That, surely, is moderate enough. If the charges were so low that the journey from London to Edinburgh only cost fourpence, then even the most unreasonable passenger would be surely contented. On these terms how much do you think the fare from London to the star ought to be? I know of one way in which to make our answer intelligible. There is a national debt with which your fathers are, and happily, only too well acquainted, you will know quite enough about it yourselves in those days when you have to pay income tax. This debt is so vast that the interest upon it is about £60,000 a day, the whole amount of the national debt being £638 millions of pounds. If you went to the booking office with the whole of this mighty sum in your pocket but stop a moment, could you carry it in your pocket? Certainly not. If it were in sovereigns, you would find that after you had as many sovereigns as you could conveniently carry there would still be some left so many, indeed, that it would be necessary to get a cart to help you on with the rest. When the cart had as great a load of sovereigns as the horse could draw there would be still some more, and you would have to get another cart, but ten carts, twenty carts, fifty carts, would not be enough. You would want five thousand of these before you would be able to move off towards the station with your money. When you did get there and asked for a ticket at the rate of one hundred miles for a penny, do you think you would get any change? No doubt some little time would be required to count the money. But when it was counted the clerk would tell you that there was not enough that he must have nearly two hundred millions of pounds more. That will give some notion of the distance of the nearest star. And we may multiply it by ten, by one hundred, and even by one thousand, and still not attain to the distance of some of the more remote stars that the telescope shows us. On account of the immense distances of the stars we can only perceive them to be mere points of light. We can never see a star to be a globe with marks on it like the moon or like one of the planets in fact, the better the telescope the smaller does the star seem, though, of course, its brightness is increased with every addition to the light grasping power of the instrument, the brightness and color of stars, another point to be noticed is the arrangement of stars in classes, according to their luster, the brightest stars, of which there are about 20, are said to be of the first magnitude, those just inferior to the first magnitude are ranked as the second, and those just lower than the second are estimated as the third, and so on. The smallest points that your unaided eyes will show you are of about the sixth magnitude. Then the telescope will reveal stars still fainter and fainter, down to what we term the seventeenth or eighteenth magnitudes, or even lower still. The number of stars of each magnitude increases very much in the classes of small ones. Most of the stars are white but many are of a somewhat ruddy hue. There are a few telescopic points which are intensely red. Some exhibit beautiful golden tints, while others are blue or green. There are some curious stars which regularly change their brilliancy. Let me try to illustrate the nature of these variables. Suppose that you were looking at a street gas lamp from a very long distance, so that it seemed a little twinkling light, and suppose that someone was preparing to turn the gas cock up and down, or, better still, Imagine a little machine which would act regularly so as to keep the light first of all at its full brightness for two days and a half, and then gradually turn it down until in three or four hours it declines to a feeble glimmer. In this low state the light remains for twenty minutes, 
then during three or four hours the gas is to be slowly turned on again until it is full. In this condition the light will remain for two days and a half, and then the same series of changes is to recommence. This would be a very odd form of gas lamp. There would be periods of two days and a half during which it would remain at its full, these would be separated by intervals of about seven hours, when the gradual turning down and turning up again would be in progress. The imaginary gas lamp is exactly paralleled by a star algol, in the constellation of Perseus figure 3, which goes through the series of changes I have indicated. Ordinarily speaking, it is a bright star of the second magnitude, and, whatever be the cause, the star performs its variations with marvelous uniformity. In fact, Algol has always arrested the attention of those who observe the heavens, and in early times was looked on as the eye of a demon. There are many other stars which also change their brilliancy. Most of them require much longer periods than Algol, and sometimes a new star which nobody has ever seen before will suddenly kindle into brilliancy. It is now known that the bright star Algol is attended by a dark companion. This dark star sometimes comes between Algol and the observer and cuts off the light. Thus it is that the diminution of brightness is produced. Double stars. Whenever you have a chance of looking at the heavens through a telescope, you should ask to be shown what is called a double star. There are many stars in the heavens which present no remarkable appearance to the unaided eye, but which a good telescope at once shows to be of quite a complex nature. These are what we call double stars in which two quite distinct stars are placed so close together that the unaided eye is unable to separate them, under the magnifying power of the telescope. However, they are seen to be distinct. In order to give some notion of what these objects are like, I shall briefly describe three of them. The first lies in that best-known constellation, the Great Bear. If you look at his tail, which consists of three stars, you will see that near the middle one of the three a small star is situated, we call this little star Alker but it is the brighter one near Alker to which I specially call your attention. The sharpest eye would never suspect that it was composed of two stars placed close together. Even a small telescope will, however, show this to be the case. And this is the easiest and the first observation that a young astronomer should make when beginning to turn a telescope to the heavens. Of course you will not imagine that I mean Alker to be the second component of the double star. It is the bright star near Alker which is the double. Here are two marbles and these marbles are fastened an inch apart, you can see them, of course, to be separate, but if the pair were moved further and further away, then you would soon not be able to distinguish between them, though the actual distance between the marbles had not altered, look at these two wax tapers which are now lighted, the little flames are an inch apart, you would have to view them from a station a third of a mile away if the distance between the two flames were to appear the same as that between the two components of this double star. Your eye would never be able to discriminate between two lights only an inch apart at so great a distance, a telescope would, however, enable you to do so, and this is the reason why we have to use telescopes to show us double stars, you might look at that double star year after year throughout the course of a long life without finding any appreciable change in the relative positions of its components, but we know that there is no such thing as rest in the universe, even if you could balance a body so as to leave it for a moment at rest. It would not stay there, for the simple reason that all the bodies round it in every direction are pulling at it, and it is certain that the pull in one direction will preponderate, so that move it must. Especially is this true in the case of two suns like those forming a double star. Placed comparatively near each other they could not remain permanently in that position, they must gradually draw together and come into collision with an awful crash. 
there is only one way by which such a disaster could be averted, that is by making one of these stars revolve around the other just as the earth revolves around the sun day or the moon revolves around the earth. Some motion must, therefore, be going on in every genuine double star, whether we have been able to see that motion or not. Let us now look at another double star of a different kind, this time it is in the constellation of Gemini. The heavenly twins are called Castor and Pollux. Of these, Castor is a very beautiful double star, consisting of two bright points, a great deal closer together than were those in the Great Bear, consequently a better telescope is required for the purpose of showing them separately. Castor has been watched for many years, and it can be seen that one of these stars is slowly revolving around the other, but it takes a very long time, amounting to hundreds of years, for a complete circuit to be accomplished. This seems very astonishing, but when you remember how exceedingly far Castor Island you will perceive that that pair of stars which appear so close together that it requires a telescope to show them apart must indeed be separated by hundreds of millions of miles. Let us try to conceive our own system transformed into a double star. If we took our outermost planet Neptune and enlarged him a good deal, and then heated him sufficiently to make him glow like a sunday he would still continue to revolve round our sun at the same distance and thus a double star would be produced. An inhabitant of Castor who turned his telescope towards us would be able to see the sun as a star. He would not, of course, be able to see the earth, but he might see Neptune like another small star close to the sun. If generations of astronomers in Castor continued their observations of our system, they would find a binary star, of which one component took a century and a half to go round the other. Need we then be surprised that when we look at Castor we observe movements that seem very slow? There is often so much diffused light about the bright stars seen in a telescope, and so much twinkling in some states of the atmosphere, that stars appear to dance about in rather a puzzling fashion, especially to one who is not accustomed to astronomical observations. I remember hearing how a gentleman once came to visit an observatory. The astronomer showed him Castor through a powerful telescope as a fine specimen of a double star. And then, by way of improving his little lesson, the astronomer mentioned that one of these stars was revolving around the other. Oh, yes, said the visitor. I saw them going round and round in the telescope. He would, however, have had to wait for a few centuries with his eye to the instrument before he would have been entitled to make this assertion. Double stars also frequently delight us by giving beautifully contrasted colors. I dare say you have often noticed the red and the green lights that are used on railways in the signal lamps. Imagine one of those red and one of those green lights away far up in the sky and placed close together. Then you would have some idea of the appearance that a colored double star presents. Though, perhaps, I should add that the hues in the heavenly bodies are not so vividly different as are those which our railway people find necessary. There is a particularly beautiful double star of this kind in the constellation of the swan. You could make an imitation of it by boring two holes, with a red-hot needle, in a piece of card, and then covering one of these holes with a small bit of the topaz-colored gelatin with which Christmas crackers are made. The other star is to be similarly colored with blue gelatin. A slide made on this principle placed in the lantern gives a very good representation of these two stars on the screen. There are many other colored doubles besides this one, and, indeed, it is noteworthy that we hardly ever find a blue or a green star by itself in the sky, it is always as a member of one of these pairs. How we find what the stars are made of, here is a piece of stone. If I wanted to know what it was composed of, I should ask a chemist to tell me. He would take it into his laboratory, and first crush it into powder, 
and then, with his test tubes, and with the liquids which his bottles contain, and his weighing scales, and other apparatus, he would tell all about it, there is so much of this, and so much of that, and plenty of this, and none at all of that, but now, suppose you ask this chemist to tell you what the sun is made of, or one of the stars, of course, you have not a sample of it to give him, how, then, can he possibly find out anything about it, well, he can tell you something, and this is the wonderful discovery that I want to explain to you, we now put down the gas, and I kindle a brilliant red light, perhaps some of those whom I see before me have occasionally ventured on the somewhat dangerous practice of making fireworks, if there is any boy here who has ever constructed sky rockets, and put the little balls into the top which are to burn with such vivid colors when the explosion takes place, he will know that the substance which tinged that fire red must have been strontium, he will recognize it by the color, because strontium gives a red light which nothing else will give, here are some of these lightning papers, as they are called, they are very pretty and very harmless, and these, too, give brilliant red flashes as I throw them, the red tint has, no doubt, been produced by strontium also, you see we recognize the substance simply by the color of the light it produced when burning, Perhaps some of you have tried to make a ghost at Christmas by dressing up in a sheet, and bearing in your hand a label blazing with a mixture of common salt and spirits of wine, the effect produced being a most ghastly one. Some mamas will hardly thank me for this suggestion, unless I add that the ghost must walk about cautiously, for otherwise the blazing spirit would be very apt to produce conflagrations of a kind more extensive than those intended. However, by the kindness of Professor Dewar, I am enabled to show the phenomenon on a splendid scale, and also free from all danger, I kindle a vivid flame of an intensely yellow color, which I think the ladies will unanimously agree is not at all becoming to their complexions, while the pretty dresses have lost their variety of colors, here is a nice bouquet, and yet you can hardly distinguish the green of the leaves from the brilliant colors of the flowers, except by trifling differences of shade, expose to this light a number of pieces of variously colored ribbon pink and red and green and blue, and their beauty is gone, and yet we are told that this yellow is a perfectly pure color, in fact, the purest color that can be produced, I think we have to be thankful that the light which our good sun sends us does not possess purity of that description, there is one substance which will produce that yellow light, it is a curious metal called sodium a metal so soft that you can cut it with a knife, and so light that it will float on water, while, still more strange, it actually takes fire the moment it is dropped on the water, it is only in a chemical laboratory that you will be likely to meet with the actual metallic sodium, yet in other forms the substance is one of the most abundant in nature, indeed, common salt is nothing but sodium closely united with the most poisonous gas, a few respirations of which would kill you, but this strange metal and this noxious gas, when united, become simply the salt for our eggs at breakfast, this pure yellow light, Wherever it is seen, either in the flame of spirits of wine mixed with salt or in that great blaze at which we have been looking, is characteristic of sodium. Wherever you see that particular kind of light, you know that sodium must have been present in the body from which it came. We have accordingly learned to recognize two substances, namely, strontium and sodium, by the different lights which they give out when burning. To these two metals we may add a third. Here is a strip of white metallic ribbon. It is called magnesium. It seems like a bit of tin at the first glance, but indeed it is a very different substance from tin, for, look, when I hold it in the spirit lamp, the strip of metal immediately takes fire, 
and burns with a white light so dazzling that it pales the gas flames to insignificance. There is no other substance which will, when kindled, give that particular kind of light which we see from magnesium. I can recommend this little experiment as quite suitable for trying at home. You can buy a bit of magnesium ribbon for a trifle at the opticians. It cannot explode or do any harm. Nor will you get into any trouble with the authorities provided you hold it when burning over a tray or a newspaper. So as to prevent the white ashes from falling on the carpet. There are, in nature, a number of simple bodies called elements. Every one of these, when ignited under suitable conditions, emits a light which belongs to it alone, and by which it can be distinguished from every other substance. I do not say that we can try the experiments in the simple way I have here indicated. Many of the materials will yield light which will require to be studied by much more elaborate artifices than those which have sufficed for us. But you will see that the method affords a means of finding out the actual substances present in the sun or in the stars. There is a practical difficulty in the fact that each of the heavenly bodies contains a number of different elements, so that in the light it sends us the hues arising from distinct substances are blended into one beam. The first thin, 